In reading this week, I was reading something by Stanley Hauerwas, who uh, I believe is a professor at Duke uh, University now. But he was talking about a time when he was at Notre Dame. And Notre Dame has a tremendous snow effect storm from the lakes. They all kind of dump their snow there. And um, usually they pull out the tractors and clear off the snow and get back to business. But there was one particular winter that Stanley Hauerwas was talking about where uh, the snow is so thick and so wet and so heavy that the tractors they had were incapable of moving it out of the way. And they remembered that back in the good old days, before they had all the technology that they had, they would just, uh, when the snow came down, they would call the students out of class and everybody would pick up a shovel and they would just shovel all the snow out of the way and they would keep, uh, keep moving on that way. So they thought, well, we can't use our technology, so let's just go back to the good old days and we'll call the students out of class and shovel the snow. So they called them all out of class. They got them all gathered in some assembly place. We're going to go shovel all the snow. Bring out the shovels. And they only had five shovels. Uh, and so they weren't able to clear the snow. And Stanley Hauerwas makes a point that if you rely too much on technology, eventually when you need to call on community, it won't be there when you need it. That's the point he makes. Now, uh, I would say that the whole interface between community and technology is very complicated, and there's lots of overlap, and there are good things and there are bad things. But the point is, from that illustration, is that our world is changing, and the, the, the nature of community itself is changing as we interface with technological advancements, as the world change, or changes around us. And, and so what does that mean? What does that mean? The series we're in, the, the, in the study of the book of Ecclesiastes, the subtitle of it is Meant for Eternal Things. And what we've been saying through the series, is that God designed us and He made us to have capacity for eternal things. We're not just to live in this life, in this world, thinking below the horizon of the sun about what's around us, but to have our minds stretched to what's beyond this world, to the spiritual things, to the eternal things. And it turns out, as we're going to read in our passage today, that community is part of those eternal things that we were meant for. So would you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and let's explore this idea a little bit this morning. What does it mean to be engaged in, et- in eternal community, community of an eternal nature? Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll pass one to you. Uh, people raise their hands, get a Bible all the time, so don't be shy about this. Um, as I often say, the words in the book are a lot more important than my words, infinitely more so. So love for you to be able to read along. In that Bible that we hand out, it's going to be page 472 that we're going to be looking at. And here, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking to us about the importance of community. And if, if you haven't been with us in this series, uh, what you see in Ecclesiastes is a very philosophical type person who is exploring all the challenging questions of life. And he's unafraid. What I love about this book is that uh, Kohelet is his name. He's unafraid of pursuing every rabbit trail and asking every tough question and following it to its logical conclusion. And he's going to take us on this journey today with respect to the whole concept of community and doing life together and the different ways that that can or can, does not happen with us. So verse 7, chapter 4, he writes, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. That's his favorite phrase 29 times in this book. And when he uses that phrase, under the sun, What he's talking about is this is how life is apart from the eternal things. This is how life works when you don't think about God, when you don't think about what's beyond the sun. You just think about what's below the horizon. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, literally it says no second, 
no second person, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So he's talking about somebody who just works and works and works, and they're trying to amass as much wealth as they possibly can. And what's the reason? There's no purpose. It's just to increase the bottom line, just to be able to say, I have a lot of money, that the number is really high. It's not taking into consideration the relationships around this person. It's just for self. So that's one example. Second example, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, you have to read those verses in the context in which they were written. That is a a time and a place and a day when travel was very much more difficult than it is for us today, right? For us today, when we travel, it's sort of like, oh, did I get the A boarding pass or the B boarding pass, right? That's the big challenge we have to face uh, when we go to travel. But in that day, it was a lot different. Um, As it says, there there were dangers when you would walk at night. There were pits, whether it be tar pits or they'd be pits that people would use to trap and snare animals. And so Jesus referenced this. You'd walk along and you could fall into a pit. Literally, you're walking through the night and it's dark. You don't have a flashlight. You fall in a pit. If you're alone, what are you going to do? There's nobody there to pick you out of it. But you, so you should go in, a, in pairs so that you can have somebody to help you out. Or uh, what happens when it gets cold? You're on this long journey. It gets cold at night. You've been walking too long. You need to sleep, but there's no hotel. There's no Motel 6 nearby for you to stop in. So you camp on the side of the road, but it's, it's cold at night. And so if you're with a group of people, you have to huddle together to stay warm. You need each other when you travel because it's dangerous and you need each other. Or lastly, what happens if you're going along the road and someone threatens to rob you? Remember Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan? We know it's a common thing for somebody to be traveling along on the highway and somebody would, would come along and rob them. Well, if you had numbers, right, then you could withstand the attack. Whereas if you were all alone, you were much more susceptible. And so this is the nature of travel in the day. And Kohelet uses this to exemplify how important community is. You can't get from point A to point B without community. We need one another. And then verse 13. Better was a poor wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. And so two kind of concepts about community. This is a a much more complex little section than the other ones, and scholars wrestle about what it means. But it seems that the clearest and easiest way to understand it is to understand there's a king who's in charge, and he's getting old, and rather than bring along an advisor, a younger person who might take over for him, that person who poses a threat to him, he keeps in prison, in jail, and he goes it alone. He tries to make decisions all on his own. And then when he loses the throne and the, and the younger one is let out of prison and he becomes king, 
And that king has a great following, but then at the end of the day, that's vanity too because he'll be forgotten very shortly after he comes into power. Uh, and if you think of the life of Joseph, a very similar kind of a thing. Joseph was in prison, and he comes out of prison, he comes to power, and then later on, as, after Joseph has been in power and he's passed, he's forgotten. And, and that's why Israel becomes oppressed in Egypt in slavery because it's forgotten. So there's an interesting correlation between those two. But the basic idea is it's really important to open yourself to having advisors if you're in, in authority. If you have decisions to make, who doesn't have decisions to make? If you have decisions to make, it's important to have advisors in your life, to have people who can speak into your life. So there's three sections in this passage, and they all circle around this idea of the importance of doing life together with other people doing life together with other people. And there's really not any mention of, of God. There's not really any, any connection here to Jesus Christ, of course. And so this is the challenge of preaching through Ecclesiastes. How do we, how do we, make, this, how do we make this a Christian sermon, right? How does, this, how does the gospel enter in to this kind of a text? And I love what Sidney Grandanus does. He's my favorite commentator on the book of Ecclesiastes now that I've been looking through multiple ones of them. Um, he draws a connection to Jesus Christ kind of an analogy to a person that Jesus interacted with who bears many of the the characteristics that we've been talking about in these three little passages here. And that is the person of Zacchaeus. You might not have think of this, but it's sort of a brilliant connection that he makes. You know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. In fact, he was the tax collector overseeing lots of tax collectors. And in that day, that meant that he was somebody who was all about amassing wealth for himself. They were usually very selfish individuals and they would take advantage of others and they would want to to have lots of money and they could never have enough money if they had a lot of money it wasn't enough money they only the the thing they wanted was more money right it doesn't matter how much money you have i want more money and that's how the tax collectors seem to have functioned especially those who were higher up and 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 jesus comes to town and there's zacchaeus he's a short guy he's trying to see jesus but he can't see him because of the crowd so he climbs up into a tree and Jesus, sensing his presence up there, he turns and he looks at him. And that's the most amazing thing. What would it be like to be up in a tree to catch a glimpse and all of a sudden Jesus turns and looks at you and how piercing and scary and beautiful that would be all at the same time. And apparently he, he connects with Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner tonight. And Zacchaeus, um, wealthy Zacchaeus, probably put out a great meal. And something happened in that interaction with Jesus where Zacchaeus went from being the stereotypical person that the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about, who's disconnected from others and all he cares about is amassing wealth for himself, to somebody who is living for others. Because at the end of that dinner, Zacchaeus not only gives everything that he's taken away from people back to them, but fourfold. He goes from somebody who's disconnected and self-centered and totally about him to somebody who is now living in community. And what Sidney Gradanus says about this, he says, Through Jesus, Zacchaeus discovered that God created us not as solitary gold diggers, but as social creatures who are obliged, obliged, I like that's a good word, to help each other. But would you expect anything else from Jesus? That he would take Zacchaeus as a man who's selfish and disconnected and abusing and using others and turn him into somebody who's connected and serving and working for others. It makes perfect sense because you've got to understand where Jesus comes from. Jesus himself comes from community. And this is very foundational to the Christian faith. If we're going to 
follow Jesus, we've got to understand this incredible linkage that, that Jesus comes out of community, the eternal community of the Trinity. He steps out of that community. And this is God's redemptive plan for us. He steps into the world. He becomes a human being just like us. He lives. He teaches. He goes to the cross. He dies a sacrificial atonement. And with all the history of sacrifices and atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament, there's no other way to understand what Jesus does on that cross than the fact that he's offering himself a sacrificial atonement in order to pay the penalty for sin so that sinners, every human being since Adam and Eve, that's all of us, could be reconciled to the one who made us, God the Father. But what really is going on there is that Jesus is finding a way to bring us into the eternal community of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And so when we talk about getting our eyes on our eternal capacity, that's the capacity that we have as human beings. We were made for that perfect community which exists between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to be drawn into that community, to be a part of it. And Jesus Christ made it possible. And the story of Zacchaeus is just emblematic of the way that Jesus works in the world. He takes people who are selfish and solitary and isolated, and he turns them into communal beings, and they experience that community on a horizontal level, and that points to the community that they were intended to have on the vertical level with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't it amazing to think that we are invited into the perfect eternal community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what that's like? Think of of the, the best things you've ever experienced about community, being in relationship with others. Now, subtract all the terrible things you've experienced being in community, right? That's what we're left with. And that's what we're called to for all eternity. And we embrace that gift by faith. So if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, you haven't come to faith in Jesus and so you don't even feel you want to, um, when the time comes, that's how you express your faith in Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for you. And, and, and God knows, he, he, he knows your thoughts. When you express that faith, that cleansing is, is applied to your life and you are made ready to be in that perfect eternal community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you experience that now, but you experience it perfectly in the future. And the church, the community of the church, is the vehicle through which God is proclaiming the message of that great gift of the good news of the, 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 sanct, the salvation of Jesus Christ, which leads to the perfect community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it stands to reason, then, that the church, as the proclaimer of that message would be a community that reflects in some respects the heavenly community. Now, we're never going to achieve it perfectly because we're, we're sinful people. We're broken and we step on each other's toes and it's broken. It just doesn't work. But we're moving in that direction and God is at work in us. And in order for us to proclaim that good news, we have to reflect that community, that heavenly community. So how do we do that? That becomes the question. And that's what this passage really invites us to consider how do you reflect the heavenly community in the here and now, in the real knit and grit of life and the struggles and all that we face and the sinfulness of human beings? How do you reflect that heavenly community here and now? And this text gives us some very simple ways to do that. And the first one is simply this, to work for others. 
what the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us is that this whole idea of working to amass wealth to self is vain. There's nothing in it for you ultimately. And that the alternative is life-giving. That, that we work not for ourselves, but with those around us in mind. With those around us in mind. And, you know, what an interesting thing to drive to work and not thinking, how much money am I going to make today? And what's the bottom line? But how is God enabling me to bless the people that he's brought into my sphere? I'm gainfully employed. I'm going to work. How has God enabled me to bless the people that he's brought into my sphere? And of course, many of us go to the fact, well, uh, of course, my family. I'm, I'm going to work to serve my family. And that's true. And some of you may say, well, I can't then do that because I'm single and I don't have family. So when I go to work, and, and I would say, you do have family. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your family. Brothers and sisters are your family. And so what would it be like to go to work thinking, okay, I'm going to serve and, and God's going to bless me with means. But those means aren't just for me to increase the bottom line. They're for me to use in the advancement of his kingdom and the in the partnership, like Zacchaeus, who suddenly became connected to all these people, to use in, in the relationships that I have. And that's true for, for married people with families as well. Sometimes we can get so focused on our own individual unique family that we, we withhold resources that God might want to use for our extended family, which is the church. And so there can become an idolatry around children and, and fear of the future. And we don't, we don't pick our heads up and look at the extended family that God has given us. But in both cases, we're called to, to look up and to think of the relationships we have. And suddenly the work that we do becomes more meaningful and more purposeful when we think in that way. And you might say, well, that sounds crazy. We don't really do that in America. Maybe in the early church they did that, you know, where they pooled all their resources. And I would say to you, actually, in this church... It happens, and the place where it happens is in our home groups. People will come to a home group, and they have a need, or they've encountered a particular circumstance, and the people in that home group, and I can't tell you how many times this has happened, will rally around that person and address that need and serve, and that's beautiful. That's, commu- that's real community. When we start living like this, suddenly Christianity means something, right? Because it's starting to really tap into the way that we live and how we treat one another and the community that we form. And so that's the first thing we can do if we want to pursue community. Jesus pursued us. We need to pursue real community, not superficial community, but real community. We need to think of one another when we work. We're not just working for our own selves. We're working for our brothers and sisters so that we can be a blessing to them. The second one is we need to join up with others. And that's what you see in this second part of the text, verses 9 through 12. You see this call not to live in isolation. Um, traveling is not nearly so dangerous as it used to be. Um, once in a while it's a little dangerous. But, I mean, they, they had to travel with others because they had to be in, in partnership when they, when they travel. We don't, we don't have to do that so much. We can get away with solidarity, solitary, solitary traveling. Um, and, and, and yet... The lesson here is, is, is that life itself, though, is, is still dangerous. If, if you're not encountering struggles right now, you will. Just wait, right? You need community. You need that three-fold uh, cord that's going to that's gonna be your strength. And if you wait too long, if you wait till the moment of crisis, 
It may be too late or it may be a lot harder to form that community. And so now is the time to form that community, to join up with others, to do life with others. And, and so let me ask you by way of application a little bit, what's keeping you from either entering more fully into a community or if you're already into, in community, to engaging that community? What's keeping you? What's holding you back? A couple, some of the things that hold us back, first of all, some of us, it just might be theology. And today we understand that, that from eternity, God exists in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what that says to us is, oh, community is more important than I realized it was. And so for some of us, we just may need to have our theology updated to understand how important community is. And that will be the thing that will get us over the hump and we'll join a home group, we'll somehow get into community. For some of us, it's not the theology. We get that part. It's the past. We've been in community. We tried that once. We got burned. And now we don't want to be in community anymore because we're afraid of getting burned again. And it was so painful that we can't take the risk of repeating that again. And for those of us who are in that situation, let me encourage you to address that head on, not to let that pain, which is keeping you from a blessing that God has for you and that is core to His being, don't let that pain and frustration keep you from community. And if we need to get together or get some counseling or figure out a way to apply the gospel to the past hurts you've experienced so that you can overcome those and, be, and enter into community. Let's do that. Let's not wait. Let's, let's do that hard work because it's absolutely critical that you get into community. So some of us, it might be a theological thing. For some of us, it might be a past hurt kind of thing. Some of us might be keeping community at bay because of an idolatry in our hearts. When you get into community, life becomes a little more messy than it was. It kind of gets a little out of control, right? Because you get engaged with people who, like yourself, are messy, and, and that can be hard, and, 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 you, and, you, and you lose a little bit of control. Sometimes people say things to you in community that are true, but that you don't want to hear. And the best way not to hear those things is to not be in community, right? And so there's this idolatry of control and self that sometimes keeps us from getting into community. And if that's the case, then today we need to repent of those things. We need to repent and tell God we're sorry that we're, we're holding on to control and trying to manage life in our own strength and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent of that and I'm going to open myself up to being in community so that I can be blessed and so that I can bless others. And then lastly, I think some of us don't get into community because we have this deep insecurity. Who would want to be in community with me? I'm such a wreck. I'm such a sinner. If they really knew me, they wouldn't want to be friends with me. How many of us have that voice in our head? And it keeps us from engaging in community. And we need to shatter that sense of identity, that broken sense of identity. The best way to do it is to think about the gospel. You are a chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed child of God. And that's who you are more than... That's the identity that's true of you. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's more true of you than anything else anybody could say about you. And it's as we come to understand and accept that new identity in Christ that we find the strength and the, and, and, and the willingness and the motivation and the ability to enter into community, even though we're sinful people. And then what we find out when we get into that community is actually the other people are sinful too. 
We come to church on Sunday morning, and we look around the room, and our assumption is, I'm a wreck. Maybe not all of us, but I'm a wreck. I'm a sinner. I'm a disaster. Look at all these perfect people. And that's just wrong, right? And it keeps us from engaging. We should look around the room and say, oh, my goodness, what a ragtag bunch of crazy people, sinners that God has redeemed, and he's called into his presence, and he's in process, and we're all a mess, and we're bumping into each other, and isn't it glorious? That's the church, right? That's the church. So enter into community. Join up with others. And then lastly, this text calls us to, to process life with others on a regular basis. Don't be that old king who isolates and makes decisions without the input of others. Don't be that old king who isolates, but invite others into your decision-making, your thought process, so that you can make the best. People who are going to ask you clarifying questions. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? What is the goal of this? What's the purpose? How does this come out of your faith in Jesus Christ? People who will ask you those kinds of questions so that the decisions you make are rooted in the gospel. I find this to be the case so many times as, as we make decisions in isolation without consideration of, of, of what God would want us to do or, or maybe um, not inviting others in. And then we're faced with picking up the pieces afterwards. And, and so many of those train wrecks could be avoided if we would open ourselves to advisors and counselors and people who can speak into our lives that we would stop isolating. Um, but we would, we would open ourselves to that. We process life regularly. Um, last week at our celebration, my close friend Gary was out. He was at the very first worship service. In fact, Gary is a close friend with whom I talk every Monday morning for an hour. We've been doing this for 14 years. 14 years. This church probably wouldn't be here without Gary because there have been many moments when I wanted to quit, or this, especially in the beginning, not so much recently, so no stress. Um, that's a destabilizing statement that I you know, didn't want to make. Uh, and, and, you know, and he talked me through, like, what are your motivations? What, you know, ask me those questions. He, he's a godly advisor in my life. And, and we need that because life is hard and it's confusing and it's stressful. And so we need that desperately. And so if you're not in a home group, this is where we really work this stuff out most clearly. Home groups are not meetings. They're not events. They're communities that are doing life together. And it doesn't really matter how they come together and, and, and all that kind of stuff. It's about doing life with other people and not doing it alone. I need to finish here. But Jesus was that way. Even, even on earth, you'd think, well, he doesn't, he's, so, he's God and he doesn't need community. But then you go to the Garden of you know, Gethsemane right before he dies and he invites his brothers to come and pray with him. And, and then he's saddened when they fall asleep in the middle of the prayer. Could you not watch with me? Could you not be community with me in this hour? He invites us into community. And he invites us to live a life with each other where we're watching with each other. We're awake with each other to help each other. And that's what the church is about. And, and it's all reflective of the eternal community that's ours now and awaits us in the future. And as we come to this table... Um, we kind of put a stake in the ground to say that we're about community and we're about 
the horizontal and the vertical aspects of community. We, we come to this table together. We also come to this table with Jesus. And so God, meet us at this table. And if we're, we're dancing around in the fringes of community and, 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 and dipping our toe in, but not really engaging, then call us today to a deeper pursuit of relationship with one another. Transparency, sharing life together, living for one another, um, sharing our resources with one another, our time with one another, our wise counsel with one another, not doing life on our own. Lord, call us to a deeper sense of community because this world is, is dying for an example of real community. And in the gospel, we have the power we need to bring it about. So would you do that in this church? Would you show the world what real community looks like so that the world would be pointed to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you would be glorified? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We want to invite you to this table. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to be part of this community of faith. You are welcome to this table. We take the bread, which symbolizes the broken body of Christ, and dip it into the cup, which symbolizes the blood shed of Christ. And it all together symbolizes our communing with God and with one another. It's a beautiful, beautiful remembrance. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we are very glad that you're here and ask that you would continue to be a part of this community. And I want to encourage you personally just to say a prayer to God right now to say, God, would you show yourself to me over this next week? If you're out there, show yourself to me. There'll be those uh, passing out communion up front here or you can go to the table. And I encourage you to pray. So pray with me right now. Lord, meet us at this table. If there's some way in which we have been denying the call to community, call that out in our hearts. And if there are ways in which you have blessed us and we need to thank you and praise you for the community you've given, call those out in our hearts as well. As we come forward to the communion table and we come forward in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.